Namo tassa bhagavato arahanto samasambodasa namo tassa bhagavato arahanto samasambodasa namo tassa bhagavato arahanto samasambodasa blessed homage to the blessed one forevermore I think I just start off with um, reading that think you may relate to as far as um, sitting here in this pot as we're being cooked. It's um, from Hafiz, a Persian poet who I very much love. Uh, it's called For Three Days, but we could maybe call this For Five Days since we have a five-day retreat. It says, not many teachers in this world can give you as much enlightenment in one year as sitting all alone for three days in your closet. That would do. <laughs> That means not leaving. You better get a friend to help with sandwiches and you better get a chamber pot. (laughs) There's no reading in there or writing poems. That would be cheating. Let's aim for the high 360-degree detox. And this sitting alone, though, is not recommended if you're normally sedated or have been under a doctor's surveillance because of your brain. Dear one, don't let Hafiz fool you. There is a ruby buried here. Don't let Hafiz fool you. There is a ruby buried here. It often feels uh, that a retreat that we are in a cooker being cooked. And, you know, from this perspective, sitting here looking out at you, uh, Mary Grace acknowledged earlier that she likes to peek and so do I. And um, no doubt you're probably peeking at us, going, what the heck are they doing? (laughs) Is he sleeping or is he awake? (laughs) But I want to say that it's an incredibly beautiful view. No doubt at times the view is not filled with happy smiles. At times it can be filled with a lot of pain and peril. At times stillness, many different faces, many different views, but collectively speaking, a beautiful view in the sense of we're taking this time to be with our lives. Such a courageous act to bear witness at times to deep pains and wounds that arise, to moments of connectedness and stillness, to moments like, when are they going to ring the bell? I can't stand another minute of this stuff. And yet, here we are practicing together. It's quite magnificent. Last night, uh, Mary Grace shared a little bit about her practice when she was on self-retreat and this recollection, I am going to die. I don't know about you, but it, it kind of stopped me in my tracks for a moment. It was that breath. And I could almost feel it sweeping through the room. I was very touched. I hope this doesn't get you undone. But when I heard it, I just there's a feeling that I felt inside me. Someone that was med- meditating on death to me is very inspiring. And it's like I had this fantasy, like I wanted to be there when you were dying. I love you so much. 
And um, but there's a sense of right in your face, you know. I'm willing to look at you right in this face. I'm going to die. How do I work with that? Jane Kenyon says that I got out of bed on two strong legs and it might have been otherwise. And I ate cereal and sweet milk and a ripe flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birchwood and all morning I did the work that I love and at noon I lied down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls and I planned another day just like this day. But one day I know it will be otherwise. Breath in and out. One day I know it will be otherwise. Maybe about 10 years ago, I was visiting my beloved meditation teacher, like a father, Langdit Seto, who was in his early 90s. And on my last um, evening, before I was to go back the next day back to the States, this was in Burma, this was the last question that I ever asked him because he died a few years later and I never got back to go to see him. I had been his student for nearly 25 years. And my last question to Seto was, Seto, I know you're in your early 90s now and you know the lifespan, you're up there. <laughs> what are you going to do when death comes knocking at your door? And I, I was really serious about this. I really wanted to know. He'd been a monk for over 60 years. He was a very sincere practitioner. And he looked at me for a long time as I asked that question. And then he smiled at me very lovingly. And then he asked me, Bob, are you afraid to die? And that really caught me off guard. I didn't, that wasn't the question that I asked. (laughs) I asked, what is he going to do? And um, he could see that it caught me off guard, and I was a little bit... (laughs) And he smiled at me after that and thoughtfully said, you need to meditate more. (laughs) That's right, said, oh, I do, and still do. And again, I asked said, oh, what are you going to do when death comes knocking at your door? And he said... Well, actually, he he reflected for a while in silence and smiled. And he said something to me that I'll never forget. He said, if I see something, I'll be mindful of seeing. If I hear something, I'll be mindful of hearing. If I feel or smell or taste anything, I'll be mindful of those things. If there's mind states that are arising, I'll be mindful of the mind states. This is how I will die. This is how I want you to die, fully awake. I thought that was a very incredible gift. I actually told my 100-year-old grandmother what Seto had said, and she said, you know, Bobby, he's a, he's a pretty wise guy. <laughs> my Jewish grandmother, she could even recognize there was some wisdom 
The last thing I'd want is to die asleep. Really aspire to a die fully awake. There's also touched with that uh, Mary Grace was talking about with Stephen Batchelor with this koan. What is this, really? And Bodhi Dharma saying, you know, don't have a clue. <laughs> what is this? Don't have a clue. Rod McClaver, um, scientist, writes, why do we exist? Is 50 trillion cells that make up the human body, and each of those cells in turn consists of atoms, countless millions or billions of them, depending on the function of a specific cell. And of the atoms, they consist mostly of empty space, protons and neutrons surrounded by electrons. Empty space, just as the universe is mostly empty space. The human body, this entity of mostly empty space, is space held together, space unified, even for a little while, by a life force. The atoms existed before the human body, and they will be here after this life is gone. But in the meantime, in this short interval, these atoms are held together by this unknowable force, the empty space. It's quite a mystery. It's quite a mystery. And it was this mystery that literally, literally drove Siddhartha Gautama, who was later to become the Buddha, on his path to awakening. And that he too was just like you and me. The Buddha, or Siddhartha Gautama, before he became the Buddha, was a human being. He was born as a prince lived in a very beautiful palace. The uh, father had been forewarned by some um, wise man that he could potentially become a Buddha, and, and yet some others said, no, he'll become a great king like you. But the father decided to just really protect his son from not seeing anything that would disturb him so that he could become a great king as well. In the Buddha's, or Siddhartha Gautama's 29th year, for some reason, don't really know, he ended up going outside of his beautiful palace and into the villagers around the town and began to see four different signs, sometimes known as the messengers, the heavenly messengers. And these were very powerful signs that awoke him in his 29th year. And, you know, he had had everything. He had the latest iPhone, the, <laughs> the iPad 2, and, you know, everything that anyone would ever want for his time. <laughs> but when he went out there, he saw a very old person and asked his father, he asked uh, Chana, who was uh, his charioteersman, who's that? So that's a person that has lived lived many years. And, Surely you live long enough, you will get old. This is aging, that no one can escape from aging. This shook him up. And the story goes on that he again went out and saw a person that was incredibly ill and was told no one can escape from illness. And again came out and saw a corpse on the road and again was told no one can escape from death. This is a very powerful moment when you realize that you've had everything 
but that it's not going to stay. It's going to go away. Lastly, he saw the sign of a holy person that was walking in the village, and Siddhartha had never seen anybody like this person before. Perhaps like that description that Mary Grace of the king seeing this, like, who's this Bodhidharma guy? This guy's different. This guy's got some type of feel that's very different than anyone I've ever met. And so, too, I think Siddhartha Gautama saw some person, the way they were walking, the way they held themselves with such serenity, even though just wearing kind of just robes and no nothing fancy at all. And Siddhartha inquired about this person, who are you? And, and was told, this is a person that's dedicating their life towards understanding the meaning of life. And, and Siddhartha heard that, that this was the only thing to do. He developed in Pali this... Uh, there's, uh, there's a word for this called samweka. And samweka means that when you have the realization that you or anyone can die at any moment, it catapults you into a sense of spiritual urgency to understand what is this life. Siddhartha Gautama had a big time. The story goes on that um, he eventually left the palace. There's a whole amazing story about that that I won't go into right now. But he left the palace his father pleaded with him, please stay, and said, I can give you everything. And Siddhartha said, try to uh, prevent me from getting sick, getting old, dying. Father couldn't do that, even though he had all the money anyone could ever want. After a number of years of very arduous practice, at times practicing such severe self-mortification and learning different meditative practices, he eventually left those all behind, realizing the middle path, avoiding the extremes of self-indulgence nor self-mortification, and took a, a seat by what's known as the Bodhi tree, the sea, this tree of awakening, and determined to sit here to try to understand what is this life. And there's a reference saying that at that time, he remembered a time when he was a boy and there was this beautiful day. Like We get these beautiful days here in Santa Cruz. It's just this beautiful day and he was just relishing on the beauty of the day. He was recalling this, sitting at the tree. Recalling this beautiful day and then also recalling on that same day as a boy, as he was looking out, he was watching the farmers and they were with the plows and the oxen going into the fields, digging up the earth for the first time in spring. And his sensitivity was incredibly heightened. And as he was feeling that joy and that beauty, he also had that sense as the plows were hitting into the soil that he almost felt just for a moment the sense of as if the worms were crying out, being cut open. And it's this really very powerful moment of just really getting the incredible beauty of this world and its fragility, and its pain. And it said from there, as you recall that memory, that he then began to breathe in and breathe out. And thus, underneath the Bodhi tree, as you recall this memory, he began to become mindful of his breath, breathing in and breathing out. And so it said that this began an incredible vigil of sitting, 
it's sad that during the time, and I believe that Jason referred to uh, Mara earlier, this known as the tempter. Mara charged with armies of seduction and violence and um, anger and fear. And every time that Mara tried to attack the Buddha, the Buddha would just, as if opening up the eyes and saying, I see you, Mara. And in that moment, Mara was defeated. And so it's said that um, in the night that the Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, became the Buddha, the awakened one, the bu- to Bud, the awakened, awakened one. Which I really love that as a name, the awakened one. Mindfulness is the practice of awakening. We turn on the light, we can see much more clearly. When he awoke, he, it is said that there was a, metaphorically speaking, a lion's roar that he said that through many a birth I have wandered in samsara. Samsara, the world of birth, old age, disease, and death. Seeking but not finding the builder of the house. Sorrowful it is to be born again and again. O householder, thou art seen. Thou shalt build no home again. All the rafters are broken. Thy rich pole is shattered. My mind has attained to the unconditioned. Mind has attained to the unconditioned. Achieved is the end of craving and ignorance. The awakened one enjoyed his time by the Bodhi tree for nearly three months. And actually, it's very nice to say and to honor that just in our very last full moon, the full moon of May, is a very special holy day in the Buddhist world, the day of his enlightenment, his birth, and his death. So the full moon just passed. And it's said that three moons later, in the full moon of July at Deer Park, at Isipatana near Benares, at sunset, the Buddha delivered his first teachings of what he had learned sitting underneath the Bodhi tree to his former five friends who were practicing very severe self-mortification practices. What he taught was called the Dharma Chaka Pavatana Sutta, the turning of the wheel of Dharma. As I mentioned earlier, the first thing he talked about was the uh, avoidance of extremes, of indulgence, and self-mortification, that there is a middle path. Now, I want to just share with you just a bit. I mean, we could spend a lot of time just on what he discovered, which is known as the Four Noble Truths, but I do want to go over them some. Our talk tonight is leading us towards reconciliation, in a very deep sense of the heart, and the development of equanimity. And so... I wanted to include these noble truths as part of this investigation. And so we've already heard and touched upon that the first noble truth that the Buddha um, awakened to is the noble truth of suffering or stress, dissatisfactoriness. It's kind of sometimes referred to like, you know, if you have a wheel and it's got a little, like, cut in it and, like, it just goes, the dunk, the dunk, the dunk. It's not quite working right or the wheel can't quite fit in the hole. But much more than that, it's uh, perhaps it's the noble truth that sometimes things just suck. 
There's birth, old age, disease, death, all the technical Yiddish word, chazarai, they come up for all of us. And no doubt here we are in this uh, retreat and we've been sitting with the chazarai. When I lived in the monastery, we very affectionately called it. It looks on the outside really nice. You hear in Land of Medicine Buddha, there's trees and you know there's little deers. But inside, it's kind of like a shit accelerator. <laughs> and so you know we're sitting in here and we're cooking. Stuff's coming up. So this is about the noble truth of suffering. And what's very powerful is that the, the Buddha acknowledged, metaphorically speaking, the, the elephant in the room, that there is indeed suffering in this life. Mary Grace touched upon this last night and also with those three universals of suffering, impermanence, no self, the sense of the lack of control. My teacher, the Venerable Tung Pudu used to say, when there's impermanence, when there's impermanence, there's dukkha. Dukkha is suffering. Because things are not lasting. John Kabat-Zinn has a very contemporary way of talking about these three universals. When we say that there's dukkha or there's stress, he says shit happens. Things are impermanent, he says things change. The whole aspect of no control, no self, don't take it personally. The powerful aspect of this teaching, and sometimes the Dharma gets a bun rap, it's all just about the Buddhists just talk about its suffering, but actually that's just the beginning of the naming of it. It's actually a liberative practice. And the Buddha, in a very practical and empirical way, says if there is suffering, there is a cause. And to investigate this cause. I want to read to you one of the most eloquent powerful translations of the noble truth of the cause of suffering by our friend Achan Amaro. He says, This bhikkhus, this monks, nuns, the sangha, is the noble truth of the cause of suffering and it is craving that is compelling, intoxicating, which causes us to be born into things again and again, ever seeking delight now here and now there. It's namely the craving for sensual delight, the craving to be something, and the craving to feel nothing. Craving that is compelling, intoxicating, causing us to be born again and again into things, ever seeking delight now, here, now, there, craving for sensual delight, craving for to be something, craving to feel nothing. So I'd like to just take a look at this for a few minutes. This aspect of compelling, intoxicating, consuming. So that, And if we take a look at the quality of our mind and our body when we're in a state of this compelling, intoxicating, this wanting, what does the body state feel like? Is it content or discontent? Is it at ease or ill at ease? Does it have a sense of balance and equanimity? We speak of the word equanimity. And this term, equanimity, is found in a number of the lists that we refer to in the Dharma. 
these lists are very pertinent because the canonical teachings of the Buddha were, were was all done in an oral language. Pali is an oral language, and it was passed on orally these teachings for about five hundred years till it was eventually transliterated into Selenese script. Some monks in the twentieth century said, "Well, could." people have really memorized all of this and passed it on, so they, a couple of monks decided to take that on. Our friend Vesaraja met one of these monks, and he was one of the first monks to master memorization the entire Tipitaka, the three canons of the Buddhist literature, as well as some can, can, uh, commentaries. And the monk went on to say, I can do it. It takes about a month and a half, and I recite eight hours a day to give a sense of the Olympic uh, memory of, of these monks, but that it c- perhaps can be done. When we speak of equanimity, I have a few different quotes. One is from uh, Muro Suzuki. He says, Green mountains have turned yellow so many times. The troubles and the worries of the world of things no longer bother me. One grain of dust in the eye will render the three worlds too small to see. When the mind is still, the floor where I sit is like endless space. Now maybe a more contemporary aspect of balance being here is from Ed Brown, who's a Tassahara. um, He wrote the Tassahara cooking book, and he's also a Zen monk. He describes a moment in the kitchen says, now I take time to peel the potatoes, to wash lettuce and boil the beets, to scrub the floors, to clean the sinks and empty the trash. I'm absorbed in the everyday and I find time to unbind and unwind and to invite the whole body, mind, breath, thought and the wild impulse to join and to bask in the task. There's no time lost thinking that somewhere else is better. No time lost imagining getting more elsewhere. No way to tell that this moment does not measure up. You feel the spaciousness of that? No time lost thinking that somewhere else is better. How much of the time are we thinking about something better? No time lost imagining getting more elsewhere. No way to tell that this moment doesn't measure up. You feel the spaciousness of that. When we speak of equanimity, we're speaking about equanimity as a factor of wisdom, a wisdom factor. We want to really be very clear that it's not about complacency, disassociation. There's a wise understanding of the nature of change, a wise understanding of the causes of suffering and its end. So coming back to this powerful definition of Amaro, craving that is compelling, intoxicating to be born again and again, and speaking about sensual delight as one of those causes. Well, oh, right in front of me. Craving that is compelling, intoxicating, 
namely the craving for sensual delight. And so I think we know about sensual delight here. And actually, if we think from a psychological uh, point of view, it's the eros instinct to be born again and again into things. And, you know, sex is a very powerful biological force for our procreation of our species, the survival of our species. And, of course, we have so many, you know, this pleasure principle to want to feel good and to dispel what doesn't feel good. This is part of our conditioning. We want to feel pleasure. And that extends to you know wanting to get a better car or you know, huh, this this Zafu's looking pretty good. I want to get this Zafu, then I'll really maybe get some enlightenment. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there's something. It's always something. Clothes. Oh, that person's got a really nice scarf, and you know, land medicine's got a real sale on scarves, and maybe I have that scarf, I'll be happy. We get the new the new iPhone 5, then I will really have it. So we know about this craving, essential delight. And I love, he says, the word compelling, intoxicating. I know that in my own body. I know that. And I know what that feels like when I'm in that state. And I'm not necessarily a happy camper. And I do get it. And it feels good for a while, but then it's like, what next, Master? What's next? What's next? Another dukkha, the craving to be someone. This ego instinct. To be someone. To be seen. It's special to be seen and to be known. But it also has its pains. Emily Dickinson says, I'm nobody. Who are you? Are you nobody too? Then there's a pair of us. But don't tell. They'd banish us, you know. How dreary to be somebody, how public, like a frog, to tell your name the live long day to an admiring bog. (laughs) (laughs) (coughs) To be someone. Kabir says, friend, please tell me what I can do about this world that I hold on to, and it keeps spinning out. I gave up my sewn clothes, and I wore a robe, but then I noticed one day the cloth was well woven, so I bought some burlap. But I still throw it elegantly over my left shoulder. (laughs) I pulled back my sexual longings, and now I'm really angry a lot. (laughs) I gave up rage, and now I notice I'm greedy all day. (laughs) I worked hard at dissolving the greed, and now I'm kind of proud of myself. (laughs) When the mind wants to break its link with the world, it often holds on to one thing, this sense of wanting to be someone. It's a cause of tremendous pain. Tremendous pain. And so much of our interviews and talking is like this sense of not being seen. To be someone. The fear of, of not being included. You know, a deep pain for so many of us. Not being included not being seen. At times it can even feel like we can get a little paranoid. It can become a conspiracy. This is from Philip Lopate. It says, We who are your closest friends feel the time has come to tell you that every Thursday we've been meeting (laughs) (laughs) to devise ways to keep you in perpetual uncertainty frustration, discontentment, and torture by neither loving you 
or cutting you adrift. Your analyst is, is, is in on it, <laughs> and your boyfriend and your ex-husband, and we're pledged to disappoint you as long as you need us. <laughs> in announcing our association, we realize we placed your hands, placed in your hands a possible antidote against the uncertainty, indeed against ourselves, but since our Thursday nights have brought us to a community of rare purpose, with you as the natural center, we hope you'll continue to make unreasonable demands for affection. <laughs> if not as a consequence of your disastrous personality, then for the good of the collective. <laughs> we laugh, because we know. We get scared. That sense of not being included, being shamed, such pain. But when we think about this sense of wanting to be someone, to be seen, and how much of the time that we, you know, this beautiful quote in Derek Walcott's poem, Love After Love, that all your life whom you've ignored for another. Like those times we've left ourselves to be seen, to be accepted, to be held, to be loved, and we leave ourselves. This wanting to be seen is big. This is one of the things that I really loved about my teacher, Lindetzetto, that he had kind of the opposite personality. Like, if he was in a room, you might not notice if he was even sitting there. There wasn't, like, energy going to him. There was a sense of um, empty space. I've said this before, that, like, uh, many a nights I would go and into his room and I would just lie on the floor while he sat in his chair meditating and just doing what he was just sitting there. And I listened to him breathe. And it was like being in the deep forest, empty and clear. Seto didn't really, he did not need to be seen. Mm-hmm. It was really quite remarkable to actually live with somebody that didn't need to be seen. He was so inwardly contented within himself. The lastly, the craving to feel nothing that our friend Achin Amro talks about. To feel nothing. The thanatos instinct. Have we not at times felt that we just didn't want to be here, to die, to be like an ostrich? Even when I was younger, sometimes, to be very honest, I felt, my, I bless my parents, I'm so grateful for them, I have this precious life. And at the same time, in the earlier years of my day, days of deep confusion, despair, I would be mad with them. Why did they do it? Because now I'm here, and I have to deal with this life. I'm, I'm going to have to die. Why did they do it? You know what they did. <laughs> <laughs> this is a version. This wanting to feel nothing, aversiveness. Oh, we know that space inside us. And the Buddha so hit it on the nail for me. Craving for, to have pleasure, the eros instinct, the craving to be something, the ego instinct, the craving to feel nothing, the thanatos instinct. And when we're living in these worlds of wanting and pushing away and wanting to be special, it creates tremendous suffering. And of course, underneath all of this, Underneath the sensual delight, the craving to be something, the craving to feel nothing, is even the most deepest and most number one cause, and that is ignorance, unawareness. It supports the whole cycle. 
So I might teach it. Tom Cotero says in his uh, the t- in his quick definition of dependent origination, which kind of lays out in twelve different spokes. When this happens, that happens. That happens. This happens. Beginning with ignorance, leading to you know as it goes on to birth, old age, disease, and death, and around the circle it goes. But Cotero says very simply, if you know, it will break. If you don't know, you will go round and around. This is dependent origination. So we're working in our practice to awaken, to wake up. This is the path of the heart. And I've witnessed here in this retreat so many of us working so deeply, such courage, such vulnerability. I know that enough, many of us are experiencing a lot of pain, some woundedness in our lives, as well as, of course, moments of connection and joy. We're learning in this practice to open into these places. I know that at times this can feel very paradoxical, even counterintuitive. Turn into your pain, acknowledge how you're feeling. Crazy. Remember when I was 16 years old, drive growing up in Boston area, going in the snow, and I'd get in skids all the time. And my dad said, I was telling my dad this one day, and he said, Bob, if you want to get out of the skid, you've got to turn into it. I thought, what? Turn into it? That scared me. I didn't want to turn into it. I kept on trying to turn away. And, of course, I didn't believe him. I'm a 16-year-old. I know everything. And um, I kept on turning away, and I kept on skidding out until one day I realized the futility of turning away, and I just, just slightly turned the wheel. And I couldn't believe it. OMG. <laughs> My... <laughs> WTF, oh no. (laughs) My car began to straighten out. It was incredible. I couldn't believe it. It began to straighten out. It was actually a powerful seed for me. A seed was planted, turning into my fear. Pema Chodron, she speaks about uh, this as a practice. She says, Generally speaking, we regard discomfort in any form as bad news. But for practitioners, meditation, people who have a certain hunger to know what's true, feelings like disappointment and embarrassment, irritation, resentment, anger, jealousy, you know, the whole top 40, instead of being bad news, are actually very clear moments. They're teaching us where it is that we're holding back. They're like messengers that show us at times with terrifying clarity exactly where we are stuck. This moment, the present moment, is the perfect teacher, and lucky for us, it's with us wherever we are. (laughs) If we can begin to get, and we've been working at it here, by beginning to open and acknowledge our pain, it's a very different way than pushing it away. But I also want to say, in the sense of not wanting to appear too macho, sometimes we do need, particularly when we experience a lot of trauma, sometimes we're not able to deal with all the pain right away. But in time, um, as uh, Jennifer Wellwood would say, whatever you flee from, it will pursue you. Whatever you welcome will transform you. In the Dharma, we really encourage what's this spirit of investigation. In Pali, ehipasiko, see for yourself 
with your own direct experience. These teachings are based on our empirical investigation. Who knows what we may discover? Francis Fenelon, a Christian mystic, says, as the light of awareness increases, we see for ourselves maybe that we're worse than we thought. (laughs) Sound familiar during this week? And we're amazed at our form of blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful feelings like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. We never could have believed that we had harbored such things and we stand aghast as we watch them appear, but please bear in mind for your comfort that we only perceive the malady when the cure is close behind, when the cure is close. So perhaps this is how we can begin to make amends when we speak of reconciliation, to help heal this broken heart. We live at times with great shame, resentment, unworthiness, fear, inadequacy, the feelings of being flawed. Reconciliation, or I should say actually resentment, is a heavy burden. I love what uh, Abraham Lincoln said. He said that during the Civil War, Lincoln had an occasion at an official reception to refer to Southerners as erring human beings than as foes to be exterminated. An elderly lady, a fiery patriot, rebuked him for speaking kindly to his enemies when he ought to be thinking about destroying them. And Lincoln supposedly said, Why, madame, do I not make... Do I not destroy my enemies when I can make them my friends? When I can make them my friends. And it's very challenging to make our enemies our friends. And I don't know how many of you have took the walk around the, the loop here and maybe gazed at some of the eight verses for thought transformation. These are pretty amazing. And I'll just read a couple of them to you. Verse 4, Whenever I see beings who are wicked in nature and overwhelmed by violent negative actions and suffering, I shall hold such rear ones dear, as if I had found a precious treasure. Verse 5, When out of envy others mistreat me, mistreat me with abuse, insults, or the like, I shall accept defeat and offer the victory to others. Verse 6, When someone whom I have benefited and in whom I have great hopes, gives me terrible harm, I shall regard that person as my holy guru. Whoa. You know, we're not the Buddha or Jesus, you know. And yet we see inspirations like Pope John Paul, our last pope, who, after he was uh, shot with an attempted assassin, I was so touched, he went to the prison where the uh, shooter was and, and forgave him. And even the Dalai Lama and his humbleness, it's reportedly that he said, like, you know, like, I think someone had asked him, like, are you, like who are you? Are you really the Dalai Lama? And supposedly he said, well, you know, I have this image in my mind who I think the Dalai Lama would be like, and I try to live that image. <laughs> that is very beautiful. We can perhaps have these types of images, and perhaps the truth is that every saint has had a past. And, you know, we got a future. <laughs> <laughs> you 
Oh, I, could t- I have hours and hours to talk here. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, I also know we started late, so I have a little bit more time. I find that some of the deepest teachings of reconciliation are found in the fourth noble truth of the Buddha, which is the Eightfold Noble Path. In brief, it's wise understanding that supports the understanding of suffering, its cause, its end, that our mind is the creator of our own heavens and our own hells through our own thoughts. Come to understand that hatred never ceases by hatred and only love ceases hatred. Martin Luther King says it very similarly. He says the ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. Through violence, you may murder the hater, but you do not murder hate. In fact, violence merely increases hate. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Reverend Martin Luther King. This Eightfold Path supports this direction of awakening and reconciliation. We even speak about that there's great guardians in the Dharma. We call the guardians of the world, moral shame, moral dread. When Moral shame is when we realize that we've done unskillful actions. We learn from them, and the moral dread is that we develop a fear, a dread of causing harm to ourselves, to others. We begin to employ our speech is wise, it's kindly, it's honest, it's timely. We understand false speech leads to the breaking of trust and slander creates division and harsh words, insults, shaming takes away our dignity. Never mentioned this before, but I know a person whose um, father, I could just cry just thinking about this and you can just sense the pain. His nickname at home was, you've all heard of King Midas. Everything he touched turned to gold. His name, his dad called him, was King Minus. <laughs> King Minus. The pain. Shaming our words can do so much pain. So we work with our speech, avoiding our sarcasm and idle chatter. We're hungering in our speech to be real, to be authentic, to be honest. When we understand that our actions affect others. I'll never forget a time when my son um, had an instance where he broke into our friend's house and took some alcohol. And he didn't quite realize at the age of 14 that this, you know, it was kind of oblivious to him. Until our friends found out about it, we ended up having a circle with a wonderful friend who was a mediator. And, and, and he really saw it was such a powerful lesson in his life that act, these actions can cause pain. 
This is a very important lesson to learn. From that place, we learn not to harm, not to take life, to steal, to sexual suffering, and so forth, and choose a life of integrity. When we live with integrity, with virtue, very easy for our effort to grow, our mindfulness, our concentration, which helps foster, of course, this deepening of wisdom. Reconciliation is a very powerful and important practice. And my mother-in-law, Charmaine, she had a very hard life. Her husband betrayed her and left her. And yet, when she died, and just the type of person she was, a very saintly person, a very simple person, I, I, I just know that she died without any iota of resentment in her heart. That's my goal in life. I would like to die without resentment. And you know, and I look inside myself, ooh, I got some ways to go. We need to begin to look deeply at the roots of resentment. Who is suffering? Reminded of the Buddhist story of um, someone getting shot by an arrow and person that's shot by the arrow that has the arrow plunked in their body doesn't start saying, you know, like, well, who's the archer and I'm going to get them and blah, 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 blah. The, the point here is you've got to pull this arrow out. It's hurting. And in the same way as we begin to reflect upon resentment, we begin to see that resentment, the harboring of resentment, the hardened heart is a very painful heart to live with. Very painful. I invite you to stretch for a second. I want to stand up and stretch. <laughs> Quick one. <laughs> I'm trying to tie it down. Still getting in my time. We started late. want to remind you, but I know it's late. <laughs> Tomorrow. <laughs> the seventh inning stretch, that's right. <laughs> I think I just kind of got that. <laughs> so reconciliation, it begins first inside ourselves. And I think it's very important for us to recognize that we are experiencing a hardened heart. When we're hard on ourselves, we're in a lot of pain. And when we can begin to recognize that, we can begin to learn from it. And sometimes I like to call this hindsight wisdom. When we look back now in where we were then and begin to understand what was fueling and driving our pain, which is often associated with our unawareness and fears, we can begin to understand those times. And most importantly, in this long winding thread that we're currently holding right now, this present moment, the thread that goes back to our past, we begin to understand that everything that has happened has led us into this moment. It's all been a part of what's brought us here. Can we begin to meet ourselves with a sense of 
tolerance or mercy or reconciliation. It's been a part of what's brought us here. Difficult for us to perhaps make amends or to open to compassion right away, but can we begin even the just this understanding in our own hindsight wisdom, gosh, when I look back what I did then and what I was living with, what I was dealing with, but we begin to understand that and it's all been a part of it now that I'm much more clear and awake and I can see clearly. So this important sense of working with our own self-judgment and criticism, that's one aspect. The second one is those times that I have hurt others. And of course, as we reflect in this hindsight wisdom, we recognize with awareness, with mindfulness, that this striking out and hurting others was fueled again by those two familiar friends, if you will, or not such friends of our, my own unawareness, my own fears, other aspects of woundedness. And of course, the last part is for those times that I have hurt others. Again, this understanding that just as I have hurt others through my own unawareness and fears and woundedness, others have hurt me in those ways. May we all discover the gateways into our hearts, this path of reconciliation. It's a difficult path, but... I think we also know that living with the hardened heart is a very painful heart to bear. With our wise understanding, we can comprehend the nature of things. And we can indeed become more balanced with our mind and heart. We can become like a non-volcanic mountain. Sometimes when I'm sitting here, I can just imagine us all as non-volcanic mountains and we're remaining motionless and still in the midst of the weather systems of the body and the mind. This is speaking to an aspect of equanimity. We come to understand the nature of things. A very beautiful reading from Achancha. And I am getting close to the end. Trying to be mindful and let things take their natural course And then your mind will become still in any surroundings like a clear forest pool. And all kinds of wonderful rare animals will come to drink at the pool and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of a Buddha. You will be still. These are the teachings of equanimity and balance grown out of deep wisdom. As we are learning to enter and to hold and to embrace our pains and our woundedness and meeting them with full awareness and acknowledgement, we get to understand the comings and goings, the nature of all things. We will be still. I love that image, and you know, at Christmas time, of Frosty the Snowman sits in that little bubble. You shake him up, and all the snow's everywhere, but Frosty's a meditator from <laughs> Gradually in time, everything gets still. Sitting like Frosty the Snowman, we will come to know the nature of all things. This quality of equanimity, the willingness to be with things as they are. In the Sutta Nipata, it says, as in the ocean's midmost depth, no wave is born, 
all was still. Let the practitioner of meditation be still, be motionless. Rumi says that out beyond the ideas of right doing and wrong doing, there is a failed and I will meet you there. Third great Zen patriarch says very simply, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. The perfect way is like vast space where nothing is lacking and nothing is in excess. So I'll just end a very beautiful reading by Dana Falls called Allow. There's no controlling life. Try corralling a lightning bolt. Try to contain a tomato. A tomato, a tornado. (laughs) (laughs) It is is getting late. Dam a stream and it will create a new channel. Resist and the tide will sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. The only safety lies in letting it all in. The wild and the weak, fear, fantasies, failures and success. And when loss rips off the doors of the heart or sadness veils your vision with despair, practice becomes simply bearing the truth. In the choice to let go of your known way of being, a whole world is revealed to your new eyes. Resist in the tide, it'll sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. So one last. Han Shan, the great and crazy Chinese poet a thousand years ago, said we're all like bugs in a bowl. All day going around, never leaving the bowl. I say, that's right, yep. Every day, climbing up the side and sliding back down over and over again. You can sit in the bottom of your bowl, head in your hands and cry, moan, feel sorry for yourself. Or you can look around, see your fellow bugs. Say, how you doing? (laughs) Nice bowl. So, I know that I've got you kind of amped here. Let us come back to the breath. And I want to say that the retreat is not over until it's over. And there's a punchline. And the punchline is, and I mean it with very deep sincerity, it's never over. Because your life is the retreat. And all that comes up in your life is your practice. This is our training here. So, Letting us come back into the silence for a moment, and present, and then we'll ring the bell and have a little bit of some walking time, and then another sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
donate.